Welcome to another episode of Trees and Lines. Today, we chatted with Nigel Berry, the CEO of Intelfuse. Nigel has been a leader in the Australian vegetation management game for many years. Today, he's leading a Melbourne headquartered technology company focused on 3D data, allowing utilities to optimize their risk management strategies. We had a very engaging chat. Have a listen. Nigel, welcome. Nigel Berry. Thanks. Um, Thanks, Tej. Yeah. I don't, I don't, uh, I don't know exactly how to introduce you. Um, you know, I introduce you as a, a winemaker, uh, somebody who manages a cattle farm, the CEO of Intelfuse, um, an Australian vegetation, you know, expert. Um, there's a lot. You got a lot of titles. Um, so, and I know you and Phil have crossed paths in in your respective kind of vegetation management journeys um, as well. So. Uh, you know, we're going to spend the next 30, 40 minutes um, chatting with you and, and talking about what you've been up to, um, doing some pretty interesting things, very innovative things on the software side. Um, for our audience, uh, Nigel Berry, um, again, is the CEO of Intelfuse, but also uh, was recently accepted into Nextera's 35 Mules cohort. So congratulations on that. Um, and is really uh, I guess trying to penetrate the U.S. market and and basically replace all vegetation human capital. <laughs> Thanks, Tej. Yeah, <laughs> we might as well hang up now. I think we've, yeah, we've lost <laughs> it's <people>. over. <laughs> <laughs> no, um, Nigel. Um, yeah, I don't even where like where should we start? Well, I mean, you might start with that thirty-five mules cohort because that probably means something to you too, but yeah, maybe not we, most of everyone else. Yeah, well, we had a great dinner down in uh, Jupiter, Florida. Um, I don't know, Nigel, like what's, yeah, I guess, you know, that's kind of brought you to the U.S. really. Um, so what's, you want to talk a little bit about that? Sure. Well, thanks Tej and Phil for inviting me on. It's a pleasure to be here. I think, um, we'll park the, we'll park the wine and the beef till later. That's, that's sort of an after work thing, but we're very fortunate to have been invited by next year into their innovation hub, which is called 35 Mules. Um, you know, we were, They've brought us in on the premise of supporting our development in this American market. Um, I'm assuming they must have seen something in what we presented to them as being both interesting to uh, next era, but more interesting to um, you know the rest of the world in terms of what potentially we could bring to the table. So you know they're, they're big thinkers, they're supporters of innovation, and it's a pleasure to be here. And I think it's good for our audience to 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 kind of hear this because you know there's always this perception of like technology startups and companies, right? Um, I think it's important to note that you know Nigel was you know one of a handful of partners ran a very successful integrated vegetation management company in Melbourne, and basically you guys sold it, right? You sold it, and then uh, that kind of led you to do some some more advanced work on the digital side in the space. Is that was that sort of summing up your journey? Like, yeah, my, well, to be honest, Tej, my journey goes back um, a bit further than that. And I, I guess I recall um, I was seventeen years old and looking at, on on my parents' farm and looking out the window and seeing the smoke of a wildfire or a bushfire heading towards us, and essentially our farm was. Um, in the path of, you know, a terrible fire in 1983, one known as Ash Wednesday, and in which there was no 
several hundred people killed, millions of stock raised and farms destroyed, etc. And that was my first experience with wildfire. But as it turned out, it's been a lifelong journey in that space. And more importantly, um, after that event, the next year, I was recruited into the old state-owned electricity corporation and um, went about the business of understanding how to design, um, manage, and uh, operate those distribution assets. And the, you know, the very first task when I went to work in, you know, it was 19 sometime in 1984, was begin the augmentation of our network to change the way it was built uh, to prevent the starting of bushfires. And it comes to no surprise to anybody listening who's been in the space that the single largest uh, outage cause on distribution networks is actually vegetation. And most people would have heard the phrase, trees and power lines don't mix. And in Australia and on the west coast of uh, the US now, you know, they don't mix for a very good reason because they can cause a spark and hence a fire. So that uh, that really, that was the beginning of my introduction to utility networks, wildfire, vegetation, etc. Over the next 10 years, I was in that utility, worked through a range of roles. And the final role was I was acting in the position of uh, the bushfire mitigation manager, which in simple terms is uh, developing the corporate policy and outworking that policy to protect the um, uh, the authority um, authorities insurance policy with respect to those fires so got a had a, had a great uh, introduction to the the world uh, of bushfire mitigation of which the vegetation program was a very significant part as it is in most utilities so whether you talk about bushfire mitigation or you talk about veg management in the end it's an emotional word that we use to focus people's um, energy and effort into into that part of the that segment of the operations. Um, 1995 brought about great change in our country and we went down the, the path of privatisation. It was during that time that I escaped. I say escaped loosely, but uh, that's what it felt like. And was able to set up our own business with uh, two partners and we built that business over 20 years. Um, and but the, the main function was it actually was actually outsourcing the vegetation management role. So taking the management from inside the utility, taking it out, and then focusing it back with a single focus on on um, driving efficiencies and change in that space. So yeah, I've got a long history there. You're right. We did sell that um, after twenty odd years, but kept this little particular piece of technology, the lidar-based technology, that's called Interfuse. And in my mind, that's a distillation of some 30-odd years of work trying to take that into the digital world and optimize all the learnings we have because we have very deep domain knowledge. And as Phil will attest in, in you know, his work life, that domain knowledge is really the essence of, um, of, of life in a way. It's all pervasive. And if you can help people with that historical knowledge of experience, then I think we've got potential to change uh, what goes on. The challenge, of course, has been, you know, how do you digitize that? We've seen LiDAR come into play. We've seen, you know, mobile mapping. We're now seeing satellites, which are all very interesting. But I think, um, you know, it's none of them, um, none of the thing. most of the things I've seen do not actually go end to end. They don't actually replace enough of the program 
to make the business case stack up very well. So we've been focused on driving that end-to-end process, removing you know, as many boots from the ground as we can in order to let the automation take its place and use the skilled arborists, foresters for very specific purposes to do the work that they're actually trained for, not to actually walk and count trees and do mundane tasks. So, I mean, that's our objective. And that's the one we're working towards. And, you know, in some respects, succeeding quite well. In others, there's still a way to go. Yeah, I I guess, you know, and, and Nigel, you know, we're obviously going to like have a very like honest in, in discussion about it. And I, I feel like the idea, the vision, what you're packaging is actually brilliant and, and extremely thoughtful. And the one thing that, at least in my experience, I've seen is really the challenge becomes the adoption, right? Replacing the boots is like replacing in some essence uh, an aspect of the buyer, which can be very scary, like this level of disruption change, which it truly is. Um, Talk a little bit about that challenge, right? You know, you're introducing something to the market that is, could be game changing and it could also like scare the shit out of the market. So how do you sort of solve for that? How are you solving for that? Hmm. It's an excellent question. And, uh, you know, I, I think it, every client is different. And, it, you know, it's classic selling, if you like. You really need to do that discovery of where each each customer is. And, uh, you know, transformation is hard. It's difficult. And when you're in a, a space like this where people are very focused, they're committed individuals, and you're, intro- you're wanting to introduce something that challenges number one, their roles and their friends' roles, it's it's difficult. And I think um, the best way to start, it's really in support of what they're doing. It's giving them better information. And I, I think one of, the, one of the great challenges of vegetation management, and I think it's a black art, and I call it a black art because fundamentally no one ever knows what they've got to do. And that... that if you think about life, you know, you wouldn't go and uh, you wouldn't build a house or a shed without having dimensions. You couldn't pour the slab of concrete if you didn't know how thick you, you wanted or how many square feet in your language you wanted. You wouldn't just go to the concrete and say, give me a price to pour a slab. He'd look at you strangely. But in many senses, that's what we do in our industry. We say we want to maintain this clearance through these many through this geography. Now, you know, I think you're opening yourself up to to many things. And you know, historically, we have been able to get a price on the table. We think we're using market forces to derive the best price. I'd put it forward that if you had better information you could get better outcomes in terms of execution and ultimately price and ultimately a risk reduction. So the the what we are trying to do is be very granular in that data to allow better and deeper analysis from a risk and cost point of view and therefore um, ultimately an execution point of view. When you say utilities don't know what they're doing or what's out there, uh, talk to me a little bit about that because uh, they probably don't have it quantified the way you do. That's correct. But I would guess most utilities do have metrics on what they're about to undertake. Sure. What what metrics um, are you thinking there, Phil? Well, 
I, you know, the basic thing from the past was, you know, number of trees that they have to maintain that are uh, within their tolerance limits hmm. or acres sure. or anything else. And they usually gather that for a more timely uh, inventory from the boots on the ground. Yeah. Um, Fair point. Uh, uh, um, points well taken. I guess what I'm more interested in is the complete inventory, not just the trees that are there for today. I'm interested in the trees for tomorrow, next year, next three years, next five years. The trees that, that um, and, and how they're interacting with every other tree. Because, you know, it's once you go through a span and you make a cut, it's done. I'm interested in what's left behind and how that's going to change in time and over what time. So I would contend that whilst utilities think they know what they've got, I don't believe they know what they really have. Yeah, I understand. It, it depends on what, if we're talking about this year or we're talking about the next 10 years or over the course of the cycle or whatever the scheduling period is. Well, well, that's well. Let's 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 have a chat about that because I think it's a it's a very valid point. But the um, if you send once you send your men out, if you send ten men out or women out, I would contend that you'll get seven different answers. And, and that that in itself suggests that we've got a risk to our our strategy and our plan. So trying to get a, a singular truth of data based on the business rules of the utility. And and then using that in our planning and our execution is where we're trying to drive to. So having more granular, deeper, better data to do a better analysis, apply risk equations, cost equations, and come up with, you know, essentially, and whilst this is not practical, but essentially which tree to cut first in order to, you know, have a better grip on risk. For, you know, the viewing audience here, Nigel, so that people understand essentially what you're doing in order for your secret sauce and your IP to work, the basic input would have to be LIDAR data, right? You need data to then map out some type of 3D image of the entire system where you can then measure point to point, the appropriate clearances, et cetera. You have a, a good snapshot understanding of what the system looks like visually. Is that correct? Am I saying this right? We certainly use LIDAR as our base case. We've found LiDAR to be the most accurate source of data. and um, But we can also use satellite. But the truth of it is the accuracy is not at the level that we need, but the LiDAR is. And the cost of LiDAR collection is coming down, you know, by the day. I'm sure once we get beyond visual line of sight drones in the air, you know, it's going to be very tough to beat the accuracy. We in utilities love accuracy. We're engineers. That's what drives us. So at the end of the day, if you're in a in a wildfire and a risk situation and you've got an insurance policy that says you must maintain a certain clearance, you're not going to trust an inaccurate data set. I guess in order for your software to, to do what it's doing at the level that you want it to do it at, it's a function of the quality of the data capture um, the accuracy of the data capture. And so in your opinion right now, where do we sit in terms of that? Like the input that's coming in, where do you think that is in terms of the quality, right? Are we 70% of the way there? Are we 60% of the way there? From a LIDAR perspective? Mm -hmm. Oh, I think oh, I'd there. say we're, you know, we're, we're much better than that. Yes. Yeah, okay. So I think LIDAR has come a long way. It's much simpler in its, um, 
in the way it's collected. Um, clearly, you need to have a specification. And that doesn't need to be complex. It just needs to meet certain criteria. I think what's important moving into the distribution world, which is, of course, where the majority of risk is left these days, is it needs to be cost competitive. So whilst LiDAR cameras are getting better and better and you can get you know literally hundreds of points per square meter it it may or may not be cost effective um, to use that data so what we've found is we can certainly get away with a lot less and so in trying to get the right cost mix we're focused on getting you know the minimum minimum data we need in order to achieve the objectives that we have the volume of data is just amazing, uh, you know, oh, uh, what's available to work with. Yeah, no, too true, Phil. And, and and as you well know, you can you can overlay those various layers of information to enhance the outputs. So we, we've taken a slightly different approach. And, um, you know, the LiDAR is a huge data set, as you say. We've taken the approach of building a 3D model of every single stem, um, pulled out the conductors, pulled out the, the poles, the grand and the man-made objects. And because it's all modelled, we can then script automatically script all the compliance measurements required for the utility and set up clearance zones. You know, every utility has a different sort of clearance zone for different reasons. And so to be able to ingest that uh, business rule into the system is critical and then publish it out in the form that they need it. And I think this is a really key thing the, to get to get the data in a form. I know in the, in the US it's called actionable insights, but in my view it's just data that the the man on the ground can understand and and use. It's very simple. That, that's that's the that's the holy grail. Defining the clearance or the tolerance limits that has to be a key to what drives your decisions. And I understand it on transmission because uh, those are defined by regulation. Uh, here in the States, I don't know about uh, Australia. Uh, in California and a lot of the West, there may be clearance uh, that's regulated on distribution. Uh, but for the vast majority of our country, that the relationship between tree and the line isn't quite as well defined. So uh, are you running into that and how are you handling that? That's a great question because my world is quite rigid. And in some cases, we have legislated clearance which <laughs> that's phenomenal. Uh, the rest is regulated. And you're right, the, the West Coast of the US is, is not dissimilar to the Australian style. I think we're in, um, in our case, we're, we're required to keep trees outside of a zone. In many places in the US, you're re- required to cut the trees to outside the zone. So two different scenarios. I think what we've seen with the people we've talked to, they have really liked the idea that they can challenge their regime and understand the cost of changing the clearance zone. Because I would contend with the LiDAR outputs that you don't need to persist with a one-size-fits-all. I think if you can understand your risk profile through the environment or via customers or, or whatever drives your risk profile, then you can apply a different clearance regime to those different areas. And furthermore, Phil, you'd well understand the Australian situation. You know, we're required to take into account sag and sway, which is a necessary uh, phenomenon for the transmission networks, but that's on our distribution networks. Sag and sway drives a lot of those cutting decisions. So um, this this 
idea that we can now bring the level of risk down to a level of granularity at, at you know tree level or span level or wherever you want it, I think is a very important concept going forward. Because having a digital line of sight of what is actually there and why you made certain decisions is going to be critical when you're backed into a corner by, in my language, a coroner's court or up against the insurers. So having this knowledge of why certain decisions were made against what business rule and having a singular, uh, single truth of data, I think becomes a critical path for the future. So you brought up something I wanted to kind of touch on, maybe specifically away from the, the technology and more about the culture, right? You know, you live in Melbourne, I believe, right? Melbourne. And, you know, I believe that Intel Fuse has partnered with a couple of Australian-based utilities. That's what you guys have been sort of uh, running your trials through. You know, your knowledge of the U.S. market and other sort of geographies, you know, talk a little bit about the difference in culture of how business gets done, um, how regulatory bodies differ. Um, you know, you mentioned some very technical, unique differences, but what about from a cultural perspective? Like, you know, how different is it, um, you know, trying to penetrate the U.S. market versus, you know, operating within the Australian one? I think in many ways they're similar. However, you know, relationships always go a long way. Sure. Credibility is, is, you know, it needs to be um, built in time. And with credibility comes the opportunity to, to work with people and, and develop, um, you know, concepts with them. So I've never had the good fortune of, of being able to walk in the door and come out with a contract. <laughs> I've never seen that happen. I would love it to happen. It's yeah, always it's uh, years of work. Yeah, you've got to build rapport. You've got to build a level of trust and, yeah. and prove your capability. Yeah. So in that respect, I don't think they're different. The, the differences are it is much harder probably for an Australian utility not to do work. So just because there's a budget crunch doesn't mean that they can stop cutting trees, especially in this uh, this new climate-affected world. I mean, it'd be fair to say in, in, in Australia now, areas that had not ever experienced a wildfire two years ago or three years ago had the worst in memory. And those areas were, were um, you know, you would have called quite temperate and, and even subtropical, but they literally perished. So... Um, Things are always on review, and I suspect the U.S. will will face similar climate challenges. So, you know, regulators will adopt and change as they see the need to, you know, to protect the the constituency. I mean, I know Phil has a lot of opinions on this. When he was building his consultancy, you know, decade and a half ago, um, and was operating in international markets, like it's. And at least in the U.S., as you move from state to state, as you move from west to east, north to south, the subcultures are so different, right? The the approach, the strategies, the the risks, the regulatory requirements, uh, what the PUC is doing here versus what they're doing over here, and and so uh, these subcultures, you know, they're they what I've observed in in my very limited lens. I'm sitting with the Mount Rushmore of vegetation experts over here. But um, what I have observed, though, is there's a dislocation, a very disconnected sort of thing. There's no, the standardization of process approach, 
uh, like you said, um, Nigel, like you can send a group of people out there and get a, a, quite a varied data set of opinions. Um, but I also feel that you get a very data set of leadership, a very data, very data set of approach, and it becomes very hard to commoditize these type of processes. Um, you know, there's no standardization of education. And I know Phil works very diligently with, you know, industry groups to try to bring that standardization to a level where we can start to, you know, have good idea sharing and, and good exchange of process. But I don't know if we're there yet. I was recently working on a case with five expert witnesses looking at one tree. And like you said, Nigel, five answers. So uh, it will be a wow. Um, yeah, well, I'm sure it's the same in this country, but, um, you know, in Australia, there's what seven states or something. Yeah. You think I would know. But, you know, when we had our own cutting resource there, we could not bring a man from one state to the other and start work. He had to have a different training regime. And when you think about that, you say, what are we doing to ourselves? I can only imagine what it must be like here. It's complex. Um, you know, as you move from a more more regulated environment, which I would assume California is, to as you come further east into the, the Midwest, yep. I'm sure there are different standards and requirements. Yep. Just simply because of what drives the OH&S uh, rules and, and probably also unionized workforces and different, different things. So, look... Training, training, training. I, I just you could not do enough if you want to build that OHS culture into what's a very dangerous industry. And if you think about it, I always say to people, you're sending relatively unskilled men into the air in a bucket truck, near life power lines, with a chainsaw, on a road reserve. What more do you want? Yeah. Yeah. Oh it's so it's pretty wild. And then you've got to know how to cut the tree as well. So we've got a very complex and challenging industry. And so investment in training at all levels is absolutely critical if we're going to make improvements in, in the ultimate outcome. You know, to date, we've talked really about how do we get to a point where we can execute, not necessarily how we execute the work, which is, you know, there is a separation there and a, and a, um, you know, a whole different game. I think when we when we met for dinner, Nigel, you had I think you mentioned there was it's an eight person team, including yourself. Um, you've got some developers, you've got some vegetation expertise. So you know, if somebody just dropped you know a hundred million dollars, you know, in your lap uh, tomorrow, what are you using that money for? Like, is is the software as it stands today completely functional and can handle anything or what is the dollars of capital use for you? Like, what, what does it do to your product? What does it do to your service? Hmm. Well, that's a that's an interesting question. Um, we can we can easily cope with any transmission project anywhere in the world. the The challenge with distribution, of course, is is somewhat different. Um, we're still building out our and scaling up our capacity to do you know, literally hundreds of thousands of poles per month and you know that if you if you look at uh, networks in the US many networks are fully encompassed and surrounded by trees so the ability of algorithms to extract a pole out of a forest so to speak or an urban forest is quite complex so there's a whole range of, of automation work that's still to be completed there and you know we've got a way to go but our our tree 
segmentation is, you know, is really fantastic. Um, but, you know, there are workarounds um, to achieving that. But, you know, the, the major investment would be in scaling up because I, I'm not necessarily, um, you know, measuring a business uh, value to me is not necessarily about the, the number of employees you have. It's actually, in this case, it's about how we can push data through the system out the other side so it's usable in the fastest possible manner. And so that's, you know, if someone was fortunate, if I was fortunate enough to have access to some of that capital, that's where I'd push it. Just drive those algorithms harder, push it through quicker on, on a larger right. scale. More, basically more development costs, right? More software uh, development, right? Processing engines. Yeah, I mean, it, it's very targeted, very targeted development costs. If you think about it, really there's... there's um, half a dozen essential algorithms. So it's improving the automation around that pole extraction, the conductor extraction. You know, that's really... The rest actually works very well. But when you get to scale, you need to obviously harden the net, harden the uh, the databases and, and make sure that it's stable. So you're uh, pushing the data. You're not acquiring it. Are you usually dependent on third-party acquisition? Yeah, good question. We are, Phil. Uh, we're happy to work with a client to subcontract that work, but uh, I've focused on you know this this middleware type proposition, whereby we're seeing a lot of utilities now investing in their own lidar systems. Um, there are many other people moving into the market, whether it be drones or helicopters or fixed wing, even Geiger mode lidar covering large swaths of the country at once. You know they they're experts at that. All we need to do is write a spec and then uh, push it in or pull it in, however people want. Are you going to predict the future? Are we uh, going to see more and more drone or more and more satellite or where are we headed? I, I think we're definitely going to see uh, drones when they can go beyond visual line of sight. That's really going to be a cost driver. I mean, I look at the drone situation now and I think they're funky and really cool. But when you can only fly, you know, you know, one or so miles before you have to move and reset up, it doesn't lend itself to wide-scale production, Phil. And you would know that. You know, you've got that a man could have done five times what was done by the drone in that time. So it's it's probably not going to be sustainable. I think... There's going to be people closing out work by using drones as audit tools, et cetera, et cetera. But, you know, frankly, I see that moving into, um, you know, augmented reality, closing out work. So, you know, that's a topic for another another day and uh, perhaps not as public as this. But, you know, there, there are I, – I see a lot of that being done prior to the workforce moving from the site. I think I believe that satellite will play have a major role to play as the accuracy increases as you know we'll be able to derive lidar from space man why wouldn't you want to do it but I think the model will change I think it will become a data on demand model not this yeah I I think the you know people struggle with flying the whole network and whilst at one level it's fantastic to have the complete data set and, and analyze the whole network, you know, it's almost not practical. And the level of risk potential that it brings to the table, 
almost unmanageable in some cases. So I, I think staged approaches and data on demand um, are going to be much more in play as we progress forward. Nigel, you have such a good international lens, right? Um, you know, with, with what's happening in Australia, do you think Australia is ahead or behind the U.S. in traditional vegetation practices, technology, uh, both hardware and software? Like, where does that part of the world sit? And do you think there are other parts in Europe that are ahead or behind? Like, who's leading us globally in, in this space? You know, best practice uh, is is driven by by local requirement. What works in one place doesn't necessarily work in another. No, that's fair. That's fair. So I I think we're all trying to solve our own problems. But what we can do is interact better and learn more from the other side of the fence. Share better information. Be collaborative in those sort of things because there are learnings from both sides. You know, I, I look at the IVM um, strategy here in the US and think, wow, that's that's pretty neat. That, that's that's clever. Do we do it in Australia? Not in the same way or same language, not with the same passion. You know, do we, do we manage risk uh, differently in Australia? Absolutely. Why? Because we've been forced to. So, you know, what's right, what's wrong. I think the great challenge is when you have incidents, there's a natural reaction to spend money rather than take a breath. Yeah, the whole idea of matching resources to the real risk and just to, uh, that that's where we need to constantly be moving. Hate to say it, Phil, but it goes to my point of actually knowing what you have. Yeah, and where no, it is. I understand. And, you know, when you, when you have that, you know, that's when you can start to ask very different questions. And when you get those answers, you can ask even more questions. And you know, sometimes it's not obvious. No, and sometimes it gets complicated. You know, the relationship between a tree or proximity to the conductor and the importance of that in the concept or context of fire is one thing. In the context of reliability, it's another. So, and I imagine there's other things that are driving utilities. So it. Uh, is interesting how you interpret that and how they'll make decisions in the future. I think it's a great point because if you look at a risk matrix of all this, there are all those items you mentioned. Then there's the supplier reliability and customer issues um, and environmental issues that can also and should be overlaid on all that. And so when you're able to know what you have and then apply those layers and lenses to it, you can then begin to filter in a very different way and get very specific as to where the risk is. You know, and I personally would much rather be in the court with that level of data and being explaining why we did it this way and why we cut that tree and not this one than than the other. <laughs> because you know, so, as we all know, I said before, it's a black art, and it, and that's because there's so much subjectivity. Now, of course, of course, this data that we have is not perfect. But what you can say is the reasons that based on a set of business rules articulated by the utility, we're able to make this decision when ranking this risk against that risk. And I think that, to me, is a start of a new way of, of doing business and thinking. 
At the moment, you know, unfortunately, we've got the 10 men out there and the seven answers. No one's right, no one's wrong. It's subjective. But that's really difficult to support. <laughs> All kinds of decisions. Do you take a tree that's 100% likely to cause one person to be out of service or a tree that's 30% likely to take 1,000 people out of You know, what's the driver? It really opens up so many possibilities on how you can assess risk. It's fantastic, isn't it? It you is. Know, how, good to be able, how good to have that data to be able to ask and test the assumptions around, uh, around that. So what? So right now, Nigel, in your in your life cycle of you know bringing this to market, you know, describe some of the challenges. Like, what are you running up against? Um, you know, is it people don't buy it? Is it adoption? Is it cost? Is it you're too far ahead? Like, where are you right now? That's a, also a, a, a interesting question, and one I reflect on almost daily. I can safely say that. Everybody that we've shown the software and the outputs to have said, this is amazing. In some cases you hear, this is the missing link, and so on. The challenge, of course, is, and, and I hadn't probably realized this enough, but the challenge is, in order for those people who technically understand it to move it forward, there's a number of layers of hierarchy to move through. Secondly, um, it's difficult because when you have this data, you have the opportunity to transform so many things. You challenge your contracting model, which we all know has a life cycle. So you can't race in and you know throw that throw that lump sum contract out or that mile contract out or that hourly rate contract out and convert to whatever you want to do. It takes time. Furthermore, you've got embedded resource that's used to doing things in a certain way. You can't change them overnight. So it becomes a change management process. But what I do believe is that if you're able to work in a collaborative partnering way with people, you can step your way through, through proof of concepts, through trials, through you know larger ge geographical areas and test these things before you go the big bang. I, I think the most dangerous thing is big bang here because nobody will trust. There won't be enough trust in the process. So they're, they're sort of the reflections I've been having, Tej, as to, to the ways forward. But it all comes down to people and trust and collaboration, I believe. And, you know, the most important thing, how do the people in the field take your data and execute? If they can't do that as if it was yesterday with the old data, it will almost inevitably fail. You know, I, I was going to comment on that because though you're, you may be solving for the seven different opinions, the, the tool, and I see what you're developing as this very well-designed tool, it still requires uh, good data. It still requires an element of uh, good human interaction, good execution. So there's, there's still that balance of technology meets, you know, good decision-making. So it'll be interesting to see how you can demonstrate that process to your buying market. Well, I, I think let's let's just walk that back a bit, sure. Tej. I, I wouldn't disagree, but I'll, I'll put this as an alternative. Sure. I, I spent 20 years trying to outsource the management function from utilities. And, you know, in, and Phil probably did the same thing, but maybe in a slightly different uh, way. 
And one of the one of the things that in doing in doing that, one of the things we did, we actually took skills away from the utility. And so what you have now is, in some ways, um, a loss of knowledge about how how the contracting market works, how the tree business works. You mean inside the utility? Yes. Okay. Sorry. Go ahead. And so, what what I think we're enabling here is them to take more control of their program. So for them to specify explicitly what they want done to a tree rather than how a span or a mile should look. Now, this is a fundamental difference. And it's what Phil's, you know, former resource would do. They'd walk the field and they'd say, you know, we want this tree removed or this tree trimmed and so on. But once again, you had the the 10 with seven answers type scenario. Now, I'm not saying that's how it was really, but, you know, that's in general the subject subjective nature of what we do. But if we can, if, we can, um, if people trust the data, and we've seen now over several iterations of uh, rolling contracts that they don't even look at the, the 3D visualization now, it's just give the data out. But the most important thing here is we take back control of what gets done. Okay. Because in a, in a tree game, you, you know, if you're the client, if you don't spend money, oh, sorry, if you don't cut a tree, you don't spend money. But what if you should have cut that tree? Then you're likely to spend a lot of money down the track. So it's knowing which tree to cut and when and why not to or why to. Those things are can be subjective, but by hardening this up, we get to, I think, a much better place in terms of um, data integrity and therefore being able to control the program going forward. Make make the cuts that have the impact. Phil, you just gave Nigel a tagline. I love it. No, but in all seriousness, you're exactly right. You know, The different contract models drive different behaviors. We need to have the behaviors that actually achieve the objectives of the utility in the most efficient, least risk way. I I love software. I, I love the digital age. I'm a sucker for it in all aspects of my life. And I think the industry and the sector in particular is ripe for it, um, is, is curious about it. Uh, the risk profile is so front and center now in every state, in most countries, wh- whether it's a climate conversation or environmental conversation, um, this is this is all happening very real time. I always get concerned about adoption and timing of when things are early or, you know, I think you're on the right track. I really do. Um, I think you've developed something very thoughtful and sleek and it represents kind of your life's body of work uh, integrated into the digital age. Um, so, you know, as we continue to, to develop our relationship, uh, you know, and a friendship and, and drink your fantastic Chardonnay, which I can't wait to do. Um, I really, you know, look forward to, uh, you know, kind of watching your journey in this process. Cause I, I, I do think you're, I do think you've developed something that, you know, warrants a lot of attention. Um, and, but I do think you're going to face some hurdles that, um, some that you know of already and some that are going to punch you in the face and you're not expecting, but, uh, but I do think that you're, you're on the right track and right journey. So I'm very excited to kind of see your progress and monitor it. I'm envious, Nigel. You know, I spent a lot of my career where the industry was 
without data, you know, just didn't have it. And then I think of what you're working with now, and it's just absolutely amazing. Yeah, well, thanks, Phil and Tej. Look, uh, be more than happy to share and collaborate with you both because I think, you know, we we all ride on the we ride on the shoulders of people who have gone before us and, and taught us. You know, I had many mentors, and uh, to be allowed to have those experiences over all these years in in different parts of the country and and different parts of the world to learn from those people. You know that's the part of that's the the impetus and the, what's been distilled into the way we think. And you know, whilst we have a software, it's actually informed by our experiences. It's not a technology pushed down. It's our experiences informing how the technology needs to deliver information for us as people at the coalface. And I think that's a really critical point of what we've we've tried to do and why we find. Um, when the adoption is finally there, there's a thirst for the there's a thirst for even pushing it even further because the data makes sense. It's in a format. It's in a language that everybody's used to, and I think that's a critical thing with software um, that that it actually um, it needs to have the DNA of the industry in it. And I'm hoping that's what we've actually done. Hearing your background, you know, you and Phil actually for a period of your careers shared a very similar background, both in the private sector and then, of course, where you started at the utility. Um, and I think that clearly seems like it's being integrated into into your solution. Like, uh, you know, you, you're joining another Aussie who's disrupting the world right now. Um, you know, you're you're trying to take on vegetation management and Greg Norman's taking on the PGA with with his with his <laughs> with his live golf. So uh you're in you're in good company with uh global disruption. Well I, I yes, I think <laughs> Uh, um, one thing there, he's got the money I have. Yeah, I was going to say. <laughs> he's got some wine too. So, um, well, you know, Phil, I don't know if you have any other any final thoughts, but I, no, I really appreciate it, Nigel. This yeah, was very good. I, yeah, Nigel, this was yeah. this was fantastic. Uh, like I said, you know, I, I look forward to continued dialogue with you offline, uh, and really kind of learning more about the software, the technology, and kind of seeing. Uh, kind of your progress within the u.s but thank you to, so much for for joining us taking the time uh, just was a great conversation really enjoyed chatting with you thanks Nigel. thank you phil and thanks yeah, Tish. it's been my Absolutely. pleasure that's it for this episode of trees and lines brought to you by iapetus holdings if you like the show please give us a five-star rating on apple or spotify if you have any questions or comments on any of our episodes or ideas for topics or guests We'd love to hear from you. Please contact us at treesandlines at iapetusllc.com. We'll chat with you soon.